Unfolding the eternal excellences, the hidden insights of the truth and the depth of the riches of wisdom and knowledge. The Bible says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have not pointed to your weaknesses. He says, I have cleansed thee by the word. I have pointed to your strength. And this is your strength, that I am Christ in you, the hope of glory. The glory of freedom, the glimpses into eternity. The gospel is not supposed to be an assumption. It's not supposed to be just a mere presupposition. Truth is older than language, but the word of God is way deeper than any human language. And now, Apostle Grace with the word. Today's teaching is going to be taken from the prophet Amos, fifth chapter. It's a lamentation to Israel. And if you'll open with me, Amos chapter five, I'll begin from the first verse and I'm going to be reading the Amplified Version. It says, hear this a word which I take up concerning you in lamentation, O house of Israel. The virgin of Israel has fallen. She has no more rise. She lies cast down and forsaken on her land. There is no one to raise her up. For thus saith the Lord God, the city that went forth a thousand shall have a hundred left. And that which went forth a hundred shall have ten left to the house of Israel. For thus saith the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me inquire for me and of me and require me as you require food and you shall live. But seek not the golden calf at Bethel nor enter into idolatrous Gilgal nor pass not to the idols of Beersheba for Gilgal shall surely go into captivity and exile and Bethel, the house of God, shall become Bethhaven, the house of vanity, emptiness, falsity and futility and come to nothing. Again he repeats, Seek the Lord, second time. Inquire for him and of him and require him, and you shall live, lest he shall rush down like the fire upon the house of Joseph, represent the ten tribes, and devour it, and there be none to quench it in Bethel, and the center of their idle hopes. You who turn justice into the bitterness of one wood, and cast righteousness uprightness, and right standing with God down to the ground. Number three, again, he says, Seek him who made the cluster of stars called Pleiades, and the constellation... Orion, who turns the shadow of death or deep darkness into the morning and darkness day into night, who calls for waters of the sea and pours them out upon the face of the earth. The Lord is his name. Somebody shout hallelujah. Now, there is a lesson that I want to give us concerning this story. It's something for all of us to learn. It teaches us quite a lot here, like I said, the prophet is lamenting. Israel, the choice people of God, the people of covenant, very sacred, people of relationship with God, everything spoken by prophecy touches Israel in some way. They have a God that has done so mighty in their lives. And then at one point, they go out of the way of God they walk out of a way of righteousness. They set themselves against the way of God. And then the prophet comes in lamentation and calls it the virgin of Israel has fallen. Calls it the virgin of Israel has fallen. The place of purity, conscience, holiness, and all this was no rise anymore. She lies cast down and forsaken on her land. There's none to raise her up. And then judgment hits the children of Israel. And we see when they entered a thousand, they came out a hundred. They went to war. They were defeated badly. When they went out a hundred, they came back ten. Things started to fall apart. Their power, their influence, their affluence, their wealth started to decimate. Things started to break left, right, and center. So fundamentally, Israel is in a lot of trouble. And the prophet is here to tell them why they are in a lot of trouble. And the prophet tells them, I know because you are fallen and the judgment is pronounced on you, you're going to want to run to Bethel. And he says, do not go to Bethel, for there is the golden calf. It's an idol of worship. It became an idol of worship. Nor, if some of you don't run to Bethel, you're going to run to Gilgal. Don't go there as well because it has become an altar of idolatry. And some of you are going to want to run to Beersheba and surely 
Beersheba has become a place to of idols. Do not run there. Because even the Gilgal you want to run to shall surely go into captivity and exile. Bethel shall become a house of vanity, a house of emptiness, falsity, and futility. They will all come to nothing wherever you've been going for, for help. And three times, the Lord tells them the first time, seek me. You're in trouble, seek me. You're broken, seek me. You're fallen, seek me, he says. And he says, inquire for me and of me. And he says, require me even as you require food. He said. And then in the next verse later again, secondly, he said, seek me. That's I think in verse 6. And then in verse 8 again, he says, seek me. In this same portion of scripture, three times, God is telling Israel, seek me. Yeah, I know you're broken. Seek me. Yeah, I know you're falling. Seek me. Yeah, I know you're in trouble. Seek me. I know things are in disarray. Yes, seek me. He's insisting. Seek me. Seek me. But you see, it's important for you to note that the moment Israel has fallen, the first place they will think to go is either Bethel or Gilgal or Beersheba. I need to give you the context of this for you to understand why instead of seeking God, the first place of refuge they ran to are these three places. And this is why. When you study the Bible, you realize that Bethel, Gilgal, Beersheba were very remarkable historical places for Israel and their God. They had a lot to remind them and they carried monuments and some artifacts to remind them of the relationship that Israel had with God back in the day. And I'll give you an example of all these three so to understand what these places meant. When you go to Bethel, some of us who read the Bible, in Genesis 28, we see this man called Jacob. He's about to meet his brother Esau. He's praying to find peace with him after having taken his birthright. And in 28th chapter of Genesis, he has a dream. There's a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached the heavens and then there were angels going up and down and God was above that ladder and he was in a dream, Jacob. And then he wakes up in verse 16 and when he wakes up out of his sleep, he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And there's a sermon there, how easy it is for people to miss God. How easy it is to miss God in your ministry, in your life, in your career, in your dreams, in your aspirations. How easy it is. How people easily miss God. How people easily miss God. You see, think about it for a second. That the Pharisees, Sadducees, the Essenes, these people that gave them their lives totally to understanding the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They went to schools in Jerusalem. They gave their all to understand God. And how it is that when God comes in the flesh, they're the very people that are crucifying him, not Pontius Pilate, not the Romans. They are the very people that are criticizing and crucifying him on the cross. The very people that read the very book for which he came to demystify. You see, how easy it is to miss God. I see it every day. Recently, I was with a pastor friend of mine and we were discussing the same thing. How that people are missing God. There's a move already. People are missing it. Many people are missing what God is doing. Okay? So, like Jacob, God was in a place and he knew it not. And the Bible says, he was afraid, verse 17, and said, how dreadful is this place. And he says, there is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And Jacob rose up early in the morning, took the stone which he had put for his pillows and set it up for a pillar. You see, he set up a monument there and poured oil upon the top of it. And verses 19, he called the name of that place Bethel. But originally or predominantly, that city was called Luz. It became Bethel. At one point we see him go and then return after making peace. God sends him back to build an altar where he had just set a stone 
And then what was Bethel became El Bethel. What was the house of God became the God of the house. God was trying to tell him that it's not about what you are building. It's about who is in the building that you are building. Somebody shout hallelujah. So from then on, the children of Israel started to look at Bethel as a holy and sacred place. Why? Remember Jacob was the father of the 12 tribes. You remember that? 12 tribes of Israel. He fathered all of them. And so for them, Bethel was a place of, you know, divine encounter. It was a place to remind them of what God did through the patriarch. And it is believed that many a time, they used to trek there to go and connect to these stones and relate with them and pray there. And if they had needs, they go and connect themselves to those places and pray and connect to the God that walked and appeared. Because again, if a man tells you God appeared here, this is where he appeared. Surely God is in this place. It was like some sort of sanctuary. And so people went there annually. Every now and then when they had needs, they ran there as a man would run to the presence of God because they needed answers. And some God answers or many God answers during that time. So you must understand that Bethel was a place people used to go continuously. You see? Let's talk about Gilgal. You remember the story of Moses, how he was leading the children of Israel into the promised land. And then at one particular point, they stir him into anger. And the Bible tells us, God tells him, because you believed not me and did not sanctify me before the children of Israel, he says, behold, you shall not bring the congregation into the land that I have given you. God refuses Moses to take the children of Israel into the promised land, takes him up on the mountain and takes him there. And then Joshua has to take over what Moses had started. And then Joshua leads the children of Israel. The Jordan is parted and then they cross all through into the promised land. And uh, the scriptures tell us the first place the children of Israel land after crossing the Jordan was Gilgal. Somebody shout hallelujah. And in Joshua chapter 4 verses 19, uh, the Bible says, And the people came up out of Jordan on the 10th day of the first month and encamped in what? Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. And the Bible says those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. Now, to take us back, when Jordan is parted, there are stones there that they had to pick as a remembrance, point of remembrance. You see? And so here, these are the stones they're talking about. And the Bible says those 12 stones which they took out of Jordan did Joshua pitch in Gilgal. And he spake unto the children of Israel saying, when your children shall ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what mean these stones? Or what is the meaning of these stones that you carried in Jordan when God parted it? Then shall you let the children know, saying, Israel came over this Jordan on dry land. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of Jordan from before you until you were passed over. And the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us before us while we were gone over. That all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty, that ye might fear the Lord your God forever. So they picked stones as a monument, reminder, and then they planted them in Gilgal, like Jacob had planted a stone in Bethel. You see? So Gilgal was a very spiritual place. When he tells them that you shall tell your children about this, it is because something had been set as a mark to remind the generations to come. So Gilgal was also a place that they used to go to constantly. When boys were of age, parents used to get them or girls and then take them, you know, you know what these stones mean? And then they tell a story of how God parted seas for the children of Israel. In Joshua, the fifth chapter, if you go to the eighth verse, I can read from the Amplified Version. When they finished circumcising all the males of the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of the place is called Gilgal, which is rolling to this day. Now let me explain this. When the children of Israel are with Moses, they rebel against the way of God as they're stirred by the mixed multitudes. God judges them and if not all actually perished in the wilderness. But their children did not perish. Their children walked with them. They came with Joshua and Caleb. Okay? So the parents have died, but the generation of their children are the group that cross into the promised land. Now, that generation was not yet circumcised. So when Joshua crosses with them, God gives him an instruction to make sure that all of them are what? Circumcised. And when they are circumcised, 
this is where we are at now. They have to rest and heal. And God is now telling us why Luz is called Gilgal because that was the place of rolling away. God rolled away the mischief, the rebellion, the clock of rebellion that children of Israel had taken on by circumcising the sons of them which had rebelled. That reproach was lifted and that rolling away is what you call Gilgal. So even then later, as I continue to read, the Bible says in verse 10, and the Israelites encamped in Gilgal and they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month at the evening in the plains of Jericho. And on the same day, they ate the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased on the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And the Israelites had manna no more, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. They do not forget that when they cross, the first place they enter is Luz, which now becomes Gilgal. Circumcision takes place there. The 12 stones, which represent the 12 tribes of Israel, are planted there. And that is where they first eat food and manna ceases to fall. It became a place of memorial. So over the yard, people used to go there as well and what? And visit it and go there to pray because it reminds them of so much of what God has done in this sacred relationship that he has shared with Israel. So is Beersheba. You see, if you go and read Genesis chapter 21, Genesis chapter 22, partly Genesis chapter 26 and 28, you will see that Beersheba was a place where God had assured his companionship to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Their biggest places of encounter with God were all in one area called Beersheba. Wells were built there and many other things were planted. So Beersheba was also one of those other holy sites. It was also one of those other holy sites. Because in many places in Beersheba, you saw covenants fulfilled and distinctive marks of destiny drawn through this Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So because it was a place of the patriarchs, many of their sons and daughters used to go to those very places to visit them. Paying pilgrimage, right? Honor. Homage, is it? Or whatever you call it. To these places. These are the three places, majorly, for the children of Israel to go. Now, that you've understood that, Israel even though they have places of connecting with God, they have places they go to, to hear God, to heal, like it is today. Some of you who live in Uganda know that we have a Catholic shrine somewhere in Namugongo. You remember we had matches here, the Chizitos and the like, the young boys that were killed in the days, was it of Mwanga? By one executioner called who? Mukajanga. That was a name. So they kill many of these young men because of their faith. And then they are buried somewhere. Many of them were killed in that area. So that place was built as a memorial to remind them of these people. Because many people feel that they connect so much to that story because they died. These young men shed their blood for the gospel. And we thank God for their lives. We do thank God for their lives. We do. So people go there every year. Huh? They come from northern Uganda, eastern Uganda, and some actually cross from all the way from Kenya. Some come from Rwanda. Some come from Tanzania. And they are walking with their crosses and what, and all of them are what? Doing that pilgrim. They need to go and celebrate. Oh, thank God. But some also feel that it's that holy thing that connects them deeper to God. And of course, there's a mind that when they're around there, their prayers are answered. They are one with God. They are reconciled to life and purpose and many things like that. And you've seen the videos by the tens of thousands. They go there, okay? So Beersheba was like that, or Bethel was like that, or Gilgal. In some of those consecrated places was like that. The Islam world today has what they call Mecca. Huh? You live like you were Ahmed or Farouk, and then they go there, and then you do your pilgrimage, and then stone things and do everything and then they come back with the title Hajj because they've done a hijab, okay? And then ladies come back and they're called Hajjati, you know? So in Islam, they feel that it's a place that elevates you to the next yeah? level of relationship with God. It's one of those sacred things somebody must do before they die because you earn some blessings when you go to that place. I have a story once, I was invited by the government of Israel over something and then 
I was given the opportunity to be taken around. It was a very interesting visit. And there was a mandate there that were given. And what breaks my heart, I, I didn't really want to talk about this, but some of the people went with. <laughs> we need to pray for the church. <laughs> we need to pray for the church. Let me tell you, we need to pray for the church. We need to pray for the church because Israel for us, let me tell us Christians, Israel for us is our story. It's our story. Because if you're talking about Christianity, Israel has to be mentioned. That's why we pray for it. You see, God has told us to bless Israel, isn't it? He has told us to bless Israel, pray for its peace. You see, but I went with some people wanted to take from Israel. It's sad. It's very sad. But anyway, so they took us into many holy sites and, and we saw quite a lot. And then I was always yearning to go to this place they call the Wailing Wall. Huh? Some of you have been there, haven't you? Even wailed. So I went to this Wailing Wall and uh, I remembered many years ago even before I began Fenero, I was a banker then and I had a friend who was suffering from an incurable disease. And then she told me, I want to go to the wailing wall and get my healing. Now, during that time, somebody speaks and the Spirit of the Lord spoke so profoundly. And he says, she will not heal. And I understood why. Because I'd read enough Bible to understand that God does not heal people because they go to certain places. You understand what I'm saying? God heals us because we believe in Him. Faith. You see? And this person went to the Wailing Wall and they returned a couple of years after that conversation. They were not healed because that's not how we get healed. Okay? So I was always curious. And then I used to watch TBN and all these wonderful Christian stations and I saw many men of God standing behind the wall and teaching or sharing you know, an excerpt from some portion of scripture and connecting the wailing wall to prophecy of the end time. And I understand it. I see how it reconciles through when you study end time teaching and how important it is for the temple to be rebuilt before Christ returns and many other things. But when you go right now presently to Israel, what you see there is not quite yet aligned to biblical prophecy. It has to be rebuilt. It will be in a time to come, not now. Almost that whole upper part where the mosque is, is Muslim quarter. Islam owns most of that part. And then, you know, the folk that believe in Judaism, many of them are the people on that wall. So I walk in this wall and I know the spiritual significance. I honor that place. I believe it's a holy place. And then we walk there. And then as I'm walking down the stairs, I find these guys, they have books laid before them, little small books. They're reciting uh, words from there and uh, they're tying some leather straps on their hands and they're doing quite a lot and their prayers look a bit strange and then I find others are on the wall praying and others are putting papers in there and everyone is doing their own thing and then I had some Pentecostal folk there who are kneeling down speaking in tongues more shaka so we reach there and it's interesting and then oh my goodness I'm at the wailing wall Woo! so I walk to this wall and I close my eyes like this to connect to the anointing. And the voice of the Lord spoke so clearly, as you can hear me, he asked me, what are you doing? I'm praying, duh. Then I continue again. And then he asks me the second time, Grace, do I dwell in this world or in you? But people, people, people is praying. People, everybody is praying. A guy, a bishop is everywhere. People is praying. Am I in that world or am I in you? So I step back a bit like this. And I see women weeping on the wall, putting papers in there. 
it's emotional and guys are tying things and speaking and tying and untying them and untying them. So. But Judaism doesn't believe Jesus came in the flesh. So the temple they want to rebuild, you understand? It's to what end that Jesus will come into it when he returns because they believe in that coming but they don't call it the second coming because they don't see the first one. Yeah. Moses is the prophet, not Jesus. So, I started to realize that day that there were many altars on one wall and all of them had a different revelation about God. But I'm sure that a lame man would not walk on that wall. A blind eye would not open on that wall because God was not in the wall. He does not live in temples built by human hands. Ooh. Ooh. But it's sacred. And we all respect it. It's a historical place. You see what I'm saying? Well, that's what Beersheba was like. That's what Gilga was like. That's what Bethel was like. That's what your shrines in Namagongo are like. And then Israel has fallen off the way of God. And the first thing they think, look for the place where God is and just go. Look for Bethel, look for Beersheba. And again, ultimately, the question that all of us should be asking ourselves, how did the house of God become an altar of the golden calf? At what point did Bethel, which God had dwelt in, become a place of the altar of the golden calf? At what point did Gilgal become an altar of idols? At what point did Beersheba become an altar of idols. Is it that in their own selves, these altars desecrated themselves, polluted themselves and corrupted themselves? No. On the contrary, it was the idolatry in the hearts of men that went to these sacred places and because God was not in their hearts, what they brought as worship to the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob turned into the worship of Baal. Are you following me? It turned into the worship of Baal. When men build idols in their hearts, even when they come in the name of God, usually those places are desecrated. Because God is not there without the participation or involvement of a man's spirit or soul. When idolatry comes in, it defiles the temple. Because altars are not living beings. They're not just places of appointment. And who you meet on those appointments defines who you worship. So we see that it was in the idolatry of Israel. And when they go to these consecrated places, they defile them. Even those altars become places of Baal, even when God was in charge of those altars at that particular point. And because it's not the God that contends, he will let them be. But again, it also shows you the mindset that Israel carried that the bearing of their altar and understanding of altar was entirely on the places they used to go to, not their personal relationship with God. And so things are happening, idols are being built, but they feel that they can appease their conscience. They can come to a place of reconciliation of the self because they've gone in holy places. And that is a problem of our generation, especially in what we call the Neo-Pentecostal movement, which is a newer breed of Christianity that is so agreeable with the world, it's so agreeable with the age of enlightenment, it's so agreeable with the age of reason and logic, it's so agreeable with the world secular and compromise, it's so agreeable that it's almost as though when we come into the presence in such an age, we come with idols in our hearts. When we come to church, what do we come to find? Let me explain. Today in the neo-Pentecostal age, and I say that very deliberately, especially in the most developed nations of the world, like the United States and the like, have you noticed that many of the churches now, mostly the leading ministries in some of these nations, in part in Africa as well, but mostly in the most developed nations, you will find that there are topics that are not discussed or taught on a neo-Pentecostal altar. For example, 
you can't find some pastors today, some of the biggest church pastors, talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They can motivate. They can motivate you out of poverty, motivate you in a suffering relationship, motivate you to deal with your boy on drugs, motivate you to carry disease, you know, motivate you to pay your debt, you know, motivate you to get another credit card, you know, motivate you to go to school, motivate you to get a job. It's motivational. They cannot teach about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They cannot teach walking in the Spirit. They cannot demonstrate power. I'm sorry to say, God has left men of these altars. I am sorry, as I can say as hard as I can because of the office in which I've been called and I'm not apologetic at all. God has left many altars. And they know it not. Because we justify the presence of God with the cameras and the lights and the people. Oh, it was wonderful. You know, recently I was discussing with another friend of mine, again, in that nation. And I told him, every time they're advertising church now, it has to be fun. It has to be fun. Oh, we're going to have a conference tomorrow. Call your friends, tell them to come. It's going to be fun. It's going to be epic fun. You know, it's going to be fun because church has got to be fun. It's fun, you know. So everything has to be fun. You see, the young people love fun. They love fun. You have to play the music they want. You have to teach the someone they want. You have to speak to the situations that they want. You have to talk to them the way they want because if you offend them, you can't rebuke them. You can't correct them. They won't come back to you. It's got to be fun. It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. So there's nothing wrong with being funny. You see? But do you know some of you, especially the younger folk, I'm not old as well, but at least I remember days where we used to sit in the room and the spirit would come on us and we laughed for hours. We still do in our personal closets. And some of you have seen it in meetings here. And this is not fun because it, it's appealing to your eyes or ears. No, the Spirit of God is there. And, and then somebody starts to laugh from the abundance of a revelation of what God is doing to them and they have nothing to explain it. It's not funny because they are seated down and their white dress has become dirty and it's okay. Their hair is out of line and their bag is far. Perhaps their phone has crashed a bit and the screen is broken, but it's okay. She's laughing because she's filled. Marobo gotalago. That's where the church was birthed. Read the stories of the Pentecostal movements. Charles Parham and his group. Read the Azusa Street revivals in the street of Bonabray. While they're singing and worshiping God and the Spirit of God comes on these guys and they start laughing and speaking in tongues and the lambs start walking and the blind are seeing. God was there. Now that is fun. It's not fun because the cameras are good or the lights are good. It's not fun because all my friends were there. You know, I love that church because it's fun. No. It is fun because of what the Holy Spirit was doing. Do you know many people don't know what we call joy unspeakable? Full of glory. Do you know we're living in a generation that does not understand the peace that passes all understanding that guards our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus? Do you know we're living in a generation that does not know that where the presence of God is, there is peace, there is joy, there is righteousness, there is liberty. Righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. And yet you don't have money, but you can't explain those days where they find you on the streets crying. You're not crying because you lost your job or you dropped your transport, but something is happening in there. You don't have its name. You don't have its name, but it's stirring you in a way that no television can do that. A Netflix advert cannot do it. A, you know, a good song with percussion cannot do it. Nothing, nothing. No voice can do it. It's just that. It's an experience that you have with God. And I remember standing one time in a church to preach and a 73, 74-year-old man sat me down on the side and said, you know what? I understand what you're saying. But my people don't understand it. My people don't understand it. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's the thing that raised us. They served with the Oral Roberts. And these guys tested the anointing. They knew what glory was. I'm talking about a man laughing until a tumor comes out and falls. I'm talking about those kinds of things. Somebody shout hallelujah. And this is why because when we go into this newer breed of Pentecostalism, it's motivating. 
it's touching our surface, but it's not provoking our core. How can we tame our flesh? How can we build godly character? Such altars can't teach about evangelism because it builds idols of ourselves. You can't stand on the streets. You have obbies. It's guys you went to school with. How can they see you there? Suare. Suare. But the world is perishing. And they need Jesus. And you can preach that gospel. But you have an idol in that job. Because if you didn't have it, perhaps you'd be on that street preaching. You built an idol in your family name. You built an idol in your tribal positions. You built an idol on your credentials, your pedigree, your status in society, your royalty. You built an idol around that. It became an idol. It became an idol. What was supposed to bring glory to God becomes an idol. And like Israel, today I find that our generation has not emphasized or has not been taught on the side of those that should learn how to build personal altars. We're all relying on the altars and flames of other men. They would rather wait the next week until the prophet comes because every time they sit before the prophet, they hope that one day this prophet man will get one prophetic word and they've waited one year yet the show word of prophecies before them. They've waited for two years. The show word of prophecies waiting. They waited for three years until the prophet speaks. And there are those even whom the prophet prophesied on. They are still waiting for the fulfillment. They prophesied on her 25 to get married. She's getting 50. She's still waiting on the Lord. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because they need a prophet to move them. They need another man's altar to stir them. They need an apostle's altar to flame them. They need the pastor's altar to flame them. If they're not, they come back home. So every week of a day, they come called to be lit and then they go back home and then become called and then they come back again to be lit and then they go back and become called and then they come again to be lit and then they're living that life. They're living that life. It's a life of no power. It's a life of no purpose. It's a life of no influence. It's a life of survival. It's a life of strife. It's a life of struggle. It's a life of dealing with demons. Every time they're breaking this one, starts broken, the other one comes and they fight with this one and then after fighting with that one, they fight with another one. Then 10 years, 2 years, they're dealing with the same demon and then they have to go to a certain church of deliverance because there's this man who knows how he can tell you every demon. So, one of them told them, no, 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 don't go to those English speaking churches. They're not deep. They scratch surface. We are going to tell you what you're dealing with. And then they get this woman and tell her the demons of her grandmother, her great, a new creature. They're telling a new creature. The demons of their great-grandfather, their cousin's brother, that demon of the auntie who bewitches them on Tuesday. And then, and then this, this guy said, oh, what a frivolous accusation. That, oh, you know, those English guys don't pray. They don't pray. Prayer is here. Let me correct you. Church was not supposed to be a place of prayer. Church was supposed to be a place of learning and receiving instruction. Are you following? Then you go home and build your altar. Some of you get this all wrong. He says, when you come together, brethren, let everyone who has a thumb. A man cannot come with a thumb from home when he has not come with a flame. Come on! He says, let one with a thumb. Let one with a doctrine. Let one with a tongue. Let one with a revelation. Let one with interpretation. Let all things be done when you come. When you come. That means... Your home was supposed to be a place of altar. It was supposed to be a place where things happen. You were supposed to have a secret place there. You build this thing and then you come up late. And then you come in service just to oh, enjoy what you've already lit home. If you're going out and you receive a prophecy, you tell her, sister, the Lord has told me ABC. That's supposed to be the order of things. You know what happens? Your homes are the dry places. The church is the altar. That's wrong. Church is supposed to be the altar you plug into with your flame already. We have to go back and build our personal altars. Many people don't pray. I'm telling you, I know, I know, I know what I'm saying. I know what I'm saying. Many of you have prayer lives. Hi, yeah, yeah. Anybody here? Not that you have to, but I just want to ask you, how many people in this room have ever prayed at least consecutively for 90 days 
for one hour or more a day. Put up your hand if you've ever done it in your life. How many hands have come up? That means 99.5% of this room cannot contain prayer for 90 days of one hour and more. Well, pastor, do I need to pray for one hour for God to move? No. And that's not what I'm saying. But there's a reason why the Bible says in the mornings, Jesus went away and left his disciples to pray. He went a while before day and departed into a solitary and prayed. There are moments he was on the mountains with his father. Whether you're a grace preacher or you're a law preacher, you can never give an excuse for building a life of solitude with God. And I know I am a grace preacher. Many of our folk in the world of grace miss this. We are not teaching young people, people to build relationships with God. Many of them cannot pray. They cannot hear God for themselves. It has become as though that even now grace has become the excuse of our complacency to build a relationship we must have with God. Do you understand what I'm saying? I tell people, the first time I saw a crippled woman walking, this guy was in Rwanda, lays hands on this woman, and this woman stands up and starts running. I don't know. I couldn't stop praying. I was not lasting to heal the crippled woman. No. But the moment I saw that, I felt the responsibility on my life telling me, I called you here. I called you here. And whether you want it or not, there are places of faith you cannot build by simply listening to the word. You have to learn to pray. This kind goeth not away except by prayer and fasting. You must build a fasting life too. Not to rebuke devils, no. It's not about this kind of unbelief. This is Jesus telling you. This is Jesus telling you. Otherwise, if Jesus was 100% God, why would he need to pray? Huh? Answer me. Why would Jesus need to pray? He was 100% God. All he needed to do was just go and heal the sick and no, no. But even Jesus knew the fuel. He knew the divine energy necessary to perform what had to be performed to fulfill divine purpose. The Son of God one time went to a mountain in Luke 6, 12 and prayed the whole night. You see what I'm saying? You cannot talk about living a life of power without prayer. It's not possible. Speak all you want. Unless you just want to be a motivational minister. Yeah, motivate. Motivate. That's what I was trying to tell him. Oh no, those who don't pray. Simple, bring dead people. Let's bring two dead folk or one dead folk and we see who God will hear. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because some things cannot move until you learn to hear God. Some things cannot move until you acquaint yourself with God. They can't. They can't. The hearing of faith should stir your spirit to meditation and prayer. And prayer does not mean speaking for two hours. Sometimes prayer can be just sitting under worship for an hour and just be with God. How do I know it's prayer? Because at that particular point, you're not WhatsApping. You know, some of you sit in worship, but you're WhatsApping. You, you know, you're praying and then you're in, in Facebook. And then you pray and then you check out an Instagram, what? Yeah. And then you check out the video they sent to you. And then you put lol. You're not loving from your heart, but you're fulfilling all righteousness. And then you go back and say, hallelujah. Give God undivided attention. Somebody shout Hallelujah. Otherwise, you are making the places of worship your idols. Oh, I know. Even if this happens, I'll go to Apostle Grace and he'll pray for me. I have a spiritual father. He'll pray for me. But I may not be there to answer your call that day. What are you going to do? Build your personal altar. Otherwise, you're making even the places of God idols. They become your God. These altars are connecting you to God, but they are not God. Do you understand what I'm saying? God lives in men, lives in you and I. Are you following what I'm saying? That's what you're supposed to see. That's how you're supposed to interpret life. You've seen pastors' children. Pastors, you know, they heal everybody. 
deliver everybody, and then their kids get wasted. They get spoiled. They're on drugs. They're sleeping around. They're wasted. You want to know why? Because see, some of these children, when they are with their father, which is a man of God, or their mother, which is a man of God, they become their idol. They become the place they can go to when they're sick or when they're stuck. And so they don't cultivate a personal relationship. They live in the shadow of the glory of their father or their mother, who is a seeker. And then tomorrow they get in places where our crowns are not able to perform. And then the devil will have them because they were not built right. You see, the whole world is saved, but your child is wasted. You're the praying one. Why? Because in part of an us as parents, we have the responsibility to help these children build their own altar, even though we carry altars. Pastor's wives, some of you are going to become pastor's wives and some of you are pastor's wives. You're going to get married to a man of God who has a way with God. He just has a way with God. He has walked with God for many years. The things he or she, as a woman of God, has on her heart with God and you don't even have a clue. You don't even understand their altar. You just see the results and answer. And then you flow with that because it covers you. And that's a good thing. But a time comes where, even as a pastor's wife, you must build your personal altar. Because there are things functionally in your positioning that will require you to perform by divine responsibility even without the shadow of the covering on your life. You see? You have to. We have to stop building a generation that only prays when it's with people. Do you know how many people can pray if there are other people praying? You just see this man praying and then as you're getting tired like this, you open your eyes and then you see this sister on the wall doing like, then you say, what am I doing? Listen, I've been there, I've done that, I have the t-shirt and I even got the cape of it. I'll tell you my story. I was raised in a church <laughs> for many years that has its modes of prayer. They didn't really talk about prayer much, but it was a good church. Christian discipline, character, it was a good church. And then one day I go to this church and it was an overnight. Now, in my former church, how overnights were conducted, it was, they were all under all some sort of control. Somebody comes, then they share the word, then you sing for like two hours. Then they give you a commercial break where guys go to the toilet, boys will go with their girlfriends and take some tea. And you know, the guys who have come that day, he wants his girl, you know. That's the day he offers us some and then they eat and then they drink and then guys chill out and then you have this rich kid on the wall like this. <laughs> you pass and I get you get so it's as if they forced him to come to church, but he also came because there's some, you know, some girl, this girl Felicia really prays, and uh, he wants a copy. So basically, he does that, you know. And then you have those ones who just come for the fun and thrill of going to church because it's fun, you know. <laughs> so also those ones there, and then we sing, you know, yeah. And then time comes, you know, commercial break, and then you pray a bit, then you pray for that means, oh, then it's. That was compass. These guys put me in a bus. They tell me, we're going somewhere to pray. Let's go. So we reached at this place. It was an overnight. Now, that day, there was no order, no preaching, no nothing. I think that day was just a night of prayer. So we enter the church. And I'm entering the church. There is no order. Everybody, some are on their walls. Another one is in the corner as if he's... And then another one is on the ground. And then another one is cutting a chair on the head walking. So everybody's doing their own thing. And I'm like, okay, so dudes think we can't pray. Ten minutes. Twenty minutes. Who haven't I prayed for? My uncle somewhere in Maogola. Okay. <laughs> then I pray for all of them. Uncle Kaganda. All of them. And then I'm done. I'm like, oh, my friends. I pray for all my friends. My education. And then I pray for all my education. And then I'm done. Then my neighbors. I start the street. <laughs> my goodness. 30, 20 minutes. Everything a man would ever pray for was out. So I look around like this. And the guys I've gone with, eh? it's as if they are on a preamble. They have not even yet started. 
they're doing introduction. So, I say, huh. I sit there, watch. They're not stopping. They're not stopping. One hour, they're not stopping. In two and a half hours, I said, you know what? Commercial break. Let me go get myself a cup of tea. I'll be back. So outside this church, there was this area of tea. Guys used to do tea there. So I buy myself a cup of tea. And then, because I have a whole night and I've prayed everything, I put a chair in the corner to take my tea slowly. <laughs> so as I'm sipping my tea, there's this lady, she's praying. And I notice her and a few guys are going around this big cathedral. It's a big church. It's probably a 10,000 seater. They are going around it. So the guy went to press starts to observe people going around and say, let me calculate. If this guy is going around this and these square meters, uh, has about 100 meters and 100 to 100 to 100, how many of those meters become a kilometer? And as they continue to go in circles, how many kilometers are they? I went to pray. I'm calculating kilometers. Midnight, one, I sipped my tea, drank even the last tip. It's coming to one. Now they've started to pray. The other one was preamble. By 1 a.m., they were, they're going around. The I said to say, my goodness, what in the world is this? Where have I been? Am I even born again? What is this? What is this? And I'll never forget one of those nights because I started going back. I was just amazed. One guy prayed up to about 2 a.m. and said, I want every deaf ear. He was not the pastor. He was not the pastor. It was just that guy they gave a mic to pray. And the guy says, I want every deaf ear. And every deaf ear opened. I said, this is the thing. <laughs> Jesus, teach me to pray. Opened about, there were about three or four guys. They were all deaf and he opened all of them. And then he went back, Shoba, Roko, thank you, Jesus. Like everything was okay. I said, what is going on? We went to that place and I will never forget. Some boys used to stand up to wait for crippled people because they didn't want the pastor to pray for them. No, they wanted to be the ones to make these lame men walk. Said what boldness. And then went back to university. And then we had crazy boys. And I remember one time at Ankara, we were praying. And then one of our boys, same guy who's in that crazy team, sees a girl passing, she was crippled, and says, hey, come. He says, I'm going to pray for you. The guy prayed at Ankara. And the girl walked. Hey, say, what in the world is happening here? Which world have I been living in? The one I was living in. I mean, if you got flu, you got vitamin C. If you have headache, you got your solo some painkiller. And I'm meeting boys who are, ha, yeah, 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 yeah. I realized I was in the wrong world. Some of you are in the wrong world. You need to find yourselves. Because there are people who live in a world where things are happening. May you live in that world in the name of Jesus. Hey, I realized that one of the people's secrets of living a successful and effective life in the Christian faith, you must Learn to tarry. So I learned. I learned. And I, boo, 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 boo. now in my life, I can tell you this. It's rare for God not to wake me up at night. It's not possible. I just find myself awake. Ask my wife. She always finds me awake. And I'm speaking under my breath because I don't want to wake her up. She has her own time to pray, not mine. I don't want her to interrupt my... Yeah, we pray together. We have that which reconciles us. And then we also have that which... Eh. You understand what I'm saying? All couples should have that. You have that one where you pray together. Then you have that one. Where you say, first wait a bit, I need to settle some things. Why? Because if she doesn't do that, she'll make me an idol. I have headache, pray. I have stomach ache, pray. I tell her, fix yourself. Fix yourself. If you fail, you call me. But first, fix yourself. Praise the Lord Jesus Christ. We want a generation that grows up with some muscle, some spiritual muscle. Hey! 
Hey, glory to God. At least watch for one hour like he told his disciples. Could you not watch at least for one hour? That's spiritual. That's spiritual. Because at least a person should be able to watch for one hour a day. Allow that thing to grow. You'll start to see things. Pray for one hour for 90 days. You'll be amazed. I'm not telling you a formula out of Albert Einstein's book. I'm telling you something I've tested. Just do it one day and say, I'm going to purpose and pray for one hour for 90 days. You'll see what's going to happen on your life. I'm talking about power. If you have never done it, you cannot understand what I'm saying. You can only debate it with logic and reason, but you cannot understand what I'm saying. But it changes the way you see life. And then those hours start increasing. It stops to be about hours anymore. It becomes a place where you go to just, hey! Now, Israel had died from that voice of communion. And they thought that by going to Bethel, they'll draw close at righteousness. They thought that by going to Gilgal, they'll connect to God more. You should not come to Phanero to connect to God. Deeper than that, you should come to Fenero to be pruned because the connection is already there. You should come to Fenero to be, you know, sharpened because the connection is already there. Begin it from your own house and then bring it here. Say that when you say, let's pray, something on you is also vibrating. As I'm sending, another guy is sending in that corner and another is sending and then we create this atmosphere then impossible things start to happen. Somebody shout hallelujah. If we cannot build personal altars, men of God, let us forget transformation. Because I tell people, you can't live a life of sin continuously and every time you're coming in the presence of God, something is not nudging you. Something is not... No. Something starts to tell you, no, I can't live like this. Why? Because you're in the presence. But to be in a presence that convicts you that much and then you make yourself so callous in your spirit that you learn to ignore the promptings of the spirit enough to live a life rebellious. Then you remind us of Israel. The life of the word and prayer is supposed to transform you. When you come in church, there has to be transformation. Many of you, you testify you've changed. You've changed. You've changed. Some of you are not even answerable. You are not even greetable. But now people can greet you and you say, how are you? Some of you, you were very complicated things. I'm even trying. Even as your pastor, I'm still dealing with you. But at least I can say 70, 80%, some of you. And some of you are 20%. And I celebrate even the 10. I'm telling you what. I know what I'm saying. Recently, there's a boy in the church. I remember the first time the guy came in the church. He was walking like this. That's how the guy came to Fanero. So recently, I was walking and the guy saw me. Said, ah. This guy, God is dealing. Yeah, I think, I don't know what he was thinking that time. He was working like an MMA fighter. You know the... Somebody shout hallelujah. I know some of you are in the new, I mean this younger generation and people think that, you know there's this rumor that, oh you know, we used to pray, this young generation doesn't pray. We are changing it. <laughs> we are going to show them that they didn't pray. <laughs> The word and prayer. The word and prayer. You listen to the word. Some of you, you're in a car every day. Do you know what you can do in your car every day when you're driving back home? Make your car an altar. Yeah. When you're in the car as you're driving back home, you're... Yeah. Build something on you that shows that you hear God. Somebody shout hallelujah. For me, I just look at you and I start praying because I imagine how much these guys need and they've come some of us no longer have a choice. We just think of you and start praying because we can sense the demand you have toward God. You don't come for us. You come for God. So we must be available to serve you. You understand what I'm saying? 
Necessity is late. Necessity is late. And the grace is available. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord. So we're in a season where we're preparing for something. And I was sharing with someone yesterday and I told them, look, some people think they've seen yet. They haven't. Don't be mistaken by what you see. We have not yet. Ah, yeah, yeah. We have not yet. Just intensify in your place of prayer. Take the word seriously. Commit yourself. I told people, when it comes to the word and prayer, that's number one. The rest is secondary. I tell people, even the people around you should know. And when it comes to word and prayer, whatever you bring is secondary. This comes first. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Glory to God. Hallelujah. I feel charged already. 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 Thank you, Holy Spirit. I feel the anointing. Come on, let's take a minute and talk to God. The Bible says, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. Be ye transformed. Be ye transformed. Come on, let's talk to God. May God help you build a personal altar. May God build a distinctive life for you to pray. May God help you. May God enable you. If you're in this place and you're sick, I am praying for you right now in the name of Jesus that may God heal you, may God heal your back, may God heal your body, may God heal your bones in the mighty name of Jesus, may God heal your blood disease, may God heal your head, may God heal your kidneys, may God heal your liver, may God heal your eyes, may God heal, receive your healing right now in the simplicity of the spirit and do something you've not done before. Glory to God. Somebody has a twisted disc. They have been having pain from the tailbone of your back all up, slightly up there. God is healing you now in the name of Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. And for the rest of us all, I pray that may God help us. May He help us establish very deep, very powerful altars individually. And that every time we come in the presence 
on service to pray. We're just coming to allow him to stir what is already aflamed in us. What is already aflamed in us. I see God anoint people here with a unique grace of signs, miracles, and wonders. Power Holy Ghost! Thank you, Lord. Give the Lord a mighty, mighty hand clap of praise. Come on, clap for Jesus! Clap for Jesus! You have a wonderful week. You have a wonderful month. You have a wonderful year. You cannot fail. You cannot regress. Your forward, your progress, your advancement in Jesus' name. If you have never given your life to Christ, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. He said, I want to be born again today. I want that Jesus. Say, Lord Jesus, I thank you because you died for my sins and you were raised for my glory. Today, I receive you as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm born again. This Amen. sermon has been brought to you by Fenero Ministries International. For more information, contact us on telephone number plus 256-200-999400 or email us at info at You can also find us on the web at www.fenero.org. Follow us on our social media platforms on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at Fenero Ministries International. Or better still, feel free to join us every Thursday for our weekly fellowship at the Uma Upper Gardens from 5 p.m. to 9 p.m. and for our Sunday services at 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. at the Uma Multipurpose Hall. Fenero, make manifest.